So there are two camps within the Christian world when it comes to homosexuality. There are the people on the left, the progressive Christians, which think, oh, well, opposing homosexuality is hateful and bigoted and closed-minded. And as a result, we have a duty as Christians to change one of the fundamental ways that the scripture talks about humanity to what culture currently thinks, because to not do so is hateful. And there's nothing Christian about being hateful. And they're partially right and very much wrong in other ways. Then you have the people on the right <clears throat> who think, well, it just says that it's bad. And even though I don't understand it, it says it's bad. And if it says it's bad, then it must be bad. And I have more respect for those people than I do for the first group, but they're also wrong. We're left in a place where neither side understands the other or talks to the other. So we make very little progress onto understanding how the book, which has brought the most love, the most forgiveness, the most compassion and goodness into the world, could say something that we deem to be hateful. The two sides don't understand each other. The two sides don't talk to each other because it's too sensitive and both sides don't want to veer into the other's camp because they don't want to either sacrifice what is good about the worldview they hold and they just don't have the guts to really figure out anything new. There are a few things that opened my eyes to a different way of seeing this. The first was I had a guy on my podcast named Daniel Matson. He was a man who lived as a gay man for 20 years and after 20 years of living that lifestyle, he met a woman and he was very attracted to her. And that was not something he thought that he was capable of. It was not something he thought would ever happen, but it did happen. And after that experience, he left the gay lifestyle. And, uh, and his story is in my podcast archive if you if you want to hear that. It's a wonderful and eye-opening story, really. So something he said, which opened my eyes, was the idea that our conception of gay and straight are really social constructs. You know, the left says everything is a social construct, like a social construct or a social construct. I don't know if they just say everything is. But he was saying that in a, in a genuine way, the idea of gay and straight are something that is a more modern idea in a more sort of modern way of categorizing everything. And um, so that was the first step. The next step was I read Dennis Prager's uh, commentary on Genesis and on Exodus. And in there he had an essay about how in sort of pre-Bible times that it was very common for wealthy people, for powerful people, uh, for powerful men to have wives and then to have young boys, young men that they had sex with um, also, and that it was very uh, normal, very customary at certain times throughout history um, for those things to coexist, for powerful and rich men to openly have wives who they, um, you know, lived with and, and ha had relations with, and also to have men that they had relations with. And so the one thing that no one will say the one thing that I've never heard another person say is this. 
in our nature, in human nature, putting morality to the side, in human's nature, all people, every person is bisexual. Let me fill this out. My belief is that in the scripture's view, all people could live either with a same sex or a opposite sex partner. And that is why it says what it does about homosexuality. For example, there's nothing in the Bible saying thou shalt not fly because there is no implication that we have the ability to fly, that we'll struggle not to fly, that we could fly. We have no wings and as a result, there is no commandment not to use them. Now, let's talk about all the pain that gay people have experienced at the hand of straight people, if you want to say it that way. The immense uh, condescension and suffering that people who identify as gay have suffered at the hand of people who identify as straight is no small thing. And so I understand why the pendulum has swung too far the other way now. It's not a coincidence. In C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity, he spoke about how pride is literally the darkest, the worst, the most diabolical of all evil, that the very heart of evil, the very core and beating heart of evil is pride. And that one very simple way you can see that is that when someone who is deeply prideful, people can't even be in the room with them. In 1 Corinthians 10, 13, it says, there is no sin but that which is common to all men. And although I've never had that uh, temptation, although I've never had same-sex uh, struggles, same-sex temptations, it is completely reasonable to me that I could. I remember hearing a 21 Pilots song that talked about, like, had some lyric like, I wonder if I'm capable of murder. And I thought that's such a modern way of thinking that, you know, the biblical way of thinking is that everyone is capable of everything. And only do we get away from that as we give in to our arrogance, that as we act like we're above that, as we act like that isn't true of us, that we are giving in to our arrogance, that we are doing so by our arrogance, not by our Christianity. Every condescending look, every time we acted like, oh, that's disgusting, I would never do that in a million years. Every time we acted like that was so far beneath us, like we would never, ever, ever dream of anything like that. Every time we did that, we built the wall. We added a brick to the wall that now separates these two groups. Every time we acted like it was so disgusting, like it was so beneath us, we built this wall. So maybe you're sitting there thinking, okay, Zach, let's say I give you the benefit of the doubt. Do you really think I just woke up one day and just said, I guess I'm going to be gay today? No, that is not what I think. So before we get into anything else, let me lay down how I think this does work. If it isn't just something where you wake up one day and go, oh, I'm gay today, then how does it work? I want to talk about a little bit about the psychology behind in-group and out-group in-group and out-group self-selection. I'm going to reading from an article here. Just as making distinctions between self and other form the basis of the personal self, making distinctions between us and them, intergroup distinctiveness, form the basis of social identity. More specifically, social identity theory is based on three principles, social categorization, 
social comparison, and social identity. The theory starts with the notion that people categorize themselves and others as in-group and out-group members. So for example, if I were to walk into a room of 100 people, I would automatically go to the sort of loner guy wearing a hoodie uh, in the back of the room that seemed like he was sort of socially awkward and maybe like a gamer type. I would automatically self-select him and see him as the place to call home. I would automatically select myself into his group and out of the other groups. Uh, let's see. In-group membership derives social meaning through social comparison of the in-group with the out-group. Some of my meaning is seen in my distinctiveness from you, that I'm different from you, and I derive some of my identity from being different than you. This then yields social identity, namely the knowledge of group membership as a part of self, and the value and emotional significance attached to this. Thus, similar to the personal self, social identity contains both descriptive and, and evaluative aspects. The main difference between the personal self and the social identity is that the social identity forms a higher, more inclusive level of definition. Social cognitive research has confirmed that similar principles underlie both levels of self-definition. As indicated above, while a sense of personal distinctiveness forms an important basis for a sense of self, group distinctiveness forms a basis for social identity. However, whereas personal distinctiveness is inherently present in healthy individuals, there's a substantial variation to the extent to which people see the in-group as a clearly distinct thing. For example, while some left-handers see their in-group as clearly different from right-handers, some left-handers do not see people within their group as distinctively different from right-handers and see substantive overlap with the out-group. The tendency to have a clearly differentiated view of the in-group as distinct from the out-group is, is a direct function of the degree to which people identify with the group. So the stronger you identify with your in-group, the more you are likely to see it as different from everything that you consider the out-group. That is, group identification forms the bridge between the in-group and the self. In many ways, over a long period of time, that every single decision we make everywhere we go with our life, that we are always seeing ourselves as in one group and out of another group, as welcome and unwelcome. I do not see... Uh, the paradigm as being gay and straight, but that deep, deep, deep below our conscious mind, that the true paradigm is welcome and unwelcome, familiar, unfamiliar, that throughout life from childhood, every single thing that has happened to us and every decision we've made and all of that, that that all blends into this um, confluence of things where we see ourselves a certain way because every uh, day throughout life, and in every group setting, we see ourselves as in one group and out of another group. That we self-select um, via comments people make towards us, via looks. You know, one of the things this guy uh, said on my podcast who, who, you know, lived as a gay man, he talked about how when he was a child, 
that all the boys were gathered around looking at like a Sports Illustrated like swimsuit magazine and that he wanted to be in that group but that they would not let him in that group and that they were very cruel and that they, you know, cast him out of that inner circle and that as a result, you know, one small block of this way that he felt himself out of that group, out of what he thought of as heterosexual and male, that he, th you know, that that became unwelcome. I think this also happens with sexual experiences. You know, a lot of people that have some early sexual experience that, um, you know, that influences the way that we see ourselves as in a group or out of a group of welcome or unwelcome, of safe or unsafe. And one other principle I want to bring into play here is the idea that 90% of our brain activity is subconscious, so that there's so much going on that we are not conscious of. So maybe, you know, your conscious mind says like, oh, I, I never chose this or I never chose that or, or whatever, and stop acting like this is just something where I woke up one day and I just chose to be gay. You know, I didn't do that. And why would I do that? Some people say, why would I choose to be gay? They're treated so terribly and, and all of that. And I'm not suggesting that you just woke up one day and, and did that. I am s instead suggesting that via our uh, barometer for what is familiar, unfamiliar, safe, unsafe, welcome, unwelcome, in-group, out-group, that every look, every, uh, you know, every condescending word, every whatever, that all of those influence us and that we influence all of those things. That this is more, not a paradigm of gay and straight, this is a paradigm of in-group and out-group, of welcome and unwelcome, of safe and unsafe. You know, I'm a very emotional person, and my dad is very dominant, my brother was very dominant, and when I was young, um, I didn't feel very masculine for many, many years. And, you know, my father sort of recognized that I wanted to feel that way, but that I didn't. And he would encourage me um, to in the ways that I was masculine. And, you know, for those of you who are losing their mind, as I say this uh, on the left, saying, oh, he just was projecting into you what he wanted you. No, 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 no. I had a deep, deep desire to be masculine, to feel masculine. You know, I didn't always feel that way. And he encouraged me that I was, that I was strong. And he made me a part of the in-group, part of why this divide is so distinct in our world between these groups is because of how narrow our view of masculinity in the past has been. In the past, it was so narrow. It was so uh, macho like, you know, Steven Seagal or whatever, that it was so narrow that it would be very easy to feel the outside of that group. Um, anyways, I know that this is all very, very controversial stuff. And I know, and I have no desire to hurt anyone who is hearing this. And, and I know that, you know, I'll be tarred and feathered for saying any of it. But I hope for the few of you um, who truly are searching for a bridge that this has been of some use to you.